Welcome to Farmerama, bringing you stories about smaller scale sustainable farming from around the world. This month, we bring you Joel Salatin talking traditional methods and modern tools. We have our first foray into the rewilding debate with Steve Carver of the Wildland Research Institute. Dispatches from the Soil Association's Future Growers Apprenticeship and agricultural learnings in far-off lands from the Green Shoots Foundation. Abby, welcome back to the country. Regular listeners will know that you've been spending some time at your family's farm in Chile. So in the last episode, we had a report from you um, as you were basically watching the wildfires that have been in the country just, just sort of approach your farm. I know that everybody will be really keen to hear just how, how has the last month been for you? What, what, what happened? Yeah, it was all a bit crazy. And the day that Farmerama was released last month was the day or the night that the fire actually came through our farm and burnt almost everything. Uh, the firefighters saved the houses and most of the farm buildings, but all of the olives and grapes were black when we came back the next morning. We lost all our water systems and electricity and everything. But farming is a risky business and you have to be resilient. Just, you know, we talk about resilient plants. Well, we have to be resilient too. So immediately we got back to rebuilding our water system. And then as soon as we could, we gave the plants some water. Like, how do you go about rebuilding? How is that going to affect you? How much have you lost? Well, we lost two years of harvest for sure. Um, one, olive trees that were planted in the last two years they totally burned most of them and they won't grow back but anything else um, will. when I was leaving the farm yesterday we went round and had a look and many of the trees had signs of new growth which is amazing just two weeks after the fire passed through they're starting again um, and the vines as well so we'll just have to see how the recovery goes I know lots of people were um, thinking of you. We got lots of really supportive messages. And um, I'm certainly going to look forward to hearing how you're, you're getting on with rebuilding everything you've spent so long making. Thanks. On Farmerama, we want to highlight great farming and technology that supports farming. Often there can be some tension in our community between traditional farming methods and what people think of as technology. Here, Virginia-based animal farmer Joel Salatin, who we've had on the show before, talks us through a few examples which I think perfectly illustrate the applications of technology that we're excited about on Farmerama. Yeah, well, I guess one uh, good context for was it really struck me when I was asked by the uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson Foundation at uh, Monticello to deliver a talk at their Heritage Festival. And um, so I went through Thomas Jefferson's found book, uh, farm book, sorry, Thomas Jefferson's farm book. He has this wonderful, you know, big, all his farm book notes. And I pulled out all the places where he was frustrated. And, um, of course, you know, for you Britishers, Thomas Jefferson was the author of the Declaration of Independence and called King George a lot of bad names. Okay. Uh, and so, and so, um, so I, I teased out all of these, 
And what was really neat was to the, the epiphany what for me was, wow, all these frustrations we now have technological answers for. So, for example, he was frustrated about his first frustration was how to control all these animals, and it took it took all these at that time slaves, slave kids, to keep the animals out of the garden, out of the orchard, out of the barley fields, you know. And so he had these all these kids. Slave children employed all the time, protecting, you know, uh, um, vulnerable stuff, because fencing was too expensive. I mean, they didn't have wire yet, really, and and wooden uh, fencing was was. I mean, they didn't have enough chainsaws. Anyway, it was, it was very arduous or laborious to, to build a fence. And so today we've got electric fence, which is just cheap. It's cheap, cheap, and extremely portable. So, so you know, we have control. A- another one was shelter. You know, how do you how do you provide shelter? And of course, the whole thing. So, so what what, he, what the problem was? You have all these campsites around your your farm under the few shade trees, right? And so you're moving fertility from one spot to another. One place is is gradually depleting in fertility. Another place is building up not only too much fertility, but an incubator for pathogens because there's always stuff there. So now we have, we have uh, um, the ability to, to mill tinker toys. <laughs> okay, I mean, in that day, with, with you know, the, the, the pit sawmill where a guy up top and a guy down the bottom, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't afford to make small-dimension lumber. It, it was too laborious to cut. Today, with little bandsaw mills with a tenth of an inch kerf, we can now make tinker toys so we can have real lightweight ambulatory shelters to move the fertility around in the fields wherever we want to move it around. And the third one, I would just say, third one was, of course, water. How do you get water anyplace without pipes, without pumps? There was no way to actually, you know, send water anyplace. Today, we have black plastic pipe, you know, polyethylene pipe or PVC, and we can very cheaply and very and, and, and simple, wonderful pumps, and we can now uh, send water uphill uh, so that we can deliver it strategically exactly where it needs to be to be fully leveraged. You know, this list goes on and on, but it's really, it, when I look at this, I'm just struck by how, yes, we are looking back at multi-speciation, animal movement, pasture-based, perennial-based, these wonderful historic overall ideas, but we can now um, uh, participate with them in, in 2020 hindsight of, of, of 21st century infrastructure. And it really, really uh, changes the, the, the actual cost and outworking of the system. Clearly, rotational grazing is not new. But what is new are the electric mesh fences and polyethylene pipe that allow Joel to quickly and easily move the animals around 400 acres, ensuring they're safe from predators and have ample water supply without any expensive infrastructure. Joel calls this new-fashioned farming, where systems such as cow feedlots and high chemical input systems are now old-fashioned. Their costs to the land and ecosystems have demonstrated the perceived efficiencies were short-term. The mix of traditional methods with simple modern tools and tech offers a longer-term possibility for feeding the world. 
for the cynical farmers out there saying, oh yeah, of course, Joel Salatin says that, but he's a celebrity farmer. Well, we have an example from much closer to home. Andrew Brewster and his brother have cattle on 900 acres up in Angus, Scotland. He tells us about the low-tech tools and setup that they put together to get their rotational grazing off the ground. We, we started uh, rotational grazing after reading a book by Andre Vosson. And to start off with, we were moving the cows every three days, which isn't so labour-intensive. Now we're moving cows usually two times a day, but in extreme weather we'll use them, lose, move them four times a day. And this is to avoid poaching in the rain or snow or whatever. When we move the cows, we have a, a ladder system, so we have steel wire lanes, a high tensile wire of 100 metres in width. So we'll cross these lanes almost like a ladder, the, like the rungs of a ladder with temporary fen- fences. We peel back the fence every day, allow the cows forward to the next grass, into forward for the grass, and then we move the, the water trough, which is a, a bathtub on wheels with a ball cock, and that's fed with a portable water pipe, almost like an umbilical system, so we move that. Then we move the mineral feeder, which is uh, it's, uh, a, an old feeder used for feeding grain to cattle, but it's got wheels and it's got a waterproof flap so the, cows, the minerals don't get wet. And then we also have this pipe and winding kit, which is a, a trailer with a, a drum, a big... Uh, wooden drum that's used by the electrical companies for laying cable and we use that to wind up the pipe, manually wind up the water pipe so we can move that, them onto the new field or we can lay more pipe when needed. And the system only works is because we can supply water to every part of the farm, even the very tops of the hills and this is done by using a hydraulic ram pump which is a 18th century French technology a series of valves that uses the force of water to pump water up a hill. And that is, is the most fascinating thing you know, to watch. We, we found out about this by watching videos on YouTube, and then we built one ourselves. It's just incredible. Now to something that has caused much debate and upset amongst farmers, conservationists and wildlife fans alike. Rewilding. It's easy to see the excitement that beavers and wolves in the wilderness can generate. This is something that appeals to many people conceptually, but it's controversial. How is it relevant to the everyday smaller scale farmer? At last month's Oxford Real Farming Conference, Joy Rose met Steve Carver, director of the Wildland Research Institute the community with an international membership who are based out of the University of Leeds in the UK. He chatted to Joy about how small-scale farmers can continue to produce good food whilst still improving the wild aspects of the land. There's a very uh, broad spectrum of, uh, of, of approaches and levels which may be constituted rewilding. But in essence, in a farming context, uh, it very much depends on um, the level at which the individual farmer is willing to go down that route of um, 
becoming, I suppose, less intense um, in terms of the, the level of farm management and the uh, um, the production on the land is one way. So it's it's that sort of land. It, it comes down to land sharing or land sparing, I suppose. If you're into intensive arable agriculture with very large fields, highly mechanised, then you know that is not that that kind of a landscape. That farming landscape is not really appropriate for rewilding. If you're a small farm with um, you know maybe a few sheep and some cattle and uh, um, and you know some forestry on there, some mm. agroforestry on there, then there are lots of opportunities. Um, and it might be an element, as I say, of either land sharing in that you're reducing the intensity of farming across your land to make spot more space for uh, nature and natural processes or that land sparing in the case in the case of putting aside a bit of that land you know for the woodland or riparian woodland or uh, mm. creating wetlands or, or, or whatever that may mm. be and as I say it will be very context specific so I'm a, I'm a geographer I'm very interested in the uh, the spatial um, uh, context landscape context of, of land use and rewilding is an element of that um, you know going through all of the continuum of landscape uh, uses through in uh, extensive farming you know grazing lands whatever uh, through to intensive arable and then to industrial and urban at one end of the spatial spectrum through on the other end of the spectrum to you know pristine wilderness and I know we don't have pristine wilderness in Britain uh, but we do have some wild spaces and some wild places now rewilding then sits somewhere in the middle of that you know in between extensive farming and um, you know wilderness that's rewilding is attempting to move as in one direction along that landscape continuum now in a spatial setting, that might you might be thinking about core areas of wild land. Um, you know, there may be uh, uh, sites of special scientific interest. There may be uh, whole catchment landscape scale uh, core areas which we may be looking at in the future. Um, but then, how they connect across the landscape is the key. Uh, in that, currently, conservation uh, protected areas and conservation uh, management tend to be islands. They're green islands in a sea of uh, urban and, 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 and agriculture mm. and, and other land uses. And we tend to set them aside, put a ring around them and say that's for nature. Now the problem is with that is if we're talking about things like issues like climate change and, um, and migration of species and reintroductions of, uh, of formerly native species is that if you put those, uh, if you, you place them in that island context they've got nowhere to go. They're isolated. So if we can create um, with uh, landowner buy-in, we can create corridors, they're green corridors or blue corridors, we think you might write riparian corridors or coastal corridors, which allow species to migrate north-south, up the mountain, down the mountain in response to climate change and other drivers, then you know, that's really where current conservation thinking is going. It's about connecting up. Uh, and creating space for wildlife within our existing um, you know, land use metrics, matrix, matrices, mm. Mm. of which arable is, and, and grazing and other types of farming are, are, are part of. Mm. So these corridors can be different, different types. You know, they can be green corridors, riparian, they can be stepping stones, so smaller uh, areas of, of, of wilder land which species can jump from. Uh, they can be permeable corridors with you know, more extensive or less intensive land use, that sort of thing. 
And um, what did you think about the comment about uh, agroforestry being sort of interchangeable almost with the word rewilding? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, to be honest, I really don't know too much about agroforestry, but I, I, I understand the basic principle. But, you know, as I say, rewilding is a continuum. And if, if you're moving from, let's say, um, uh, grazing land to agroforestry land, that's moving you further towards the wild end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, and, and certain species and natural processes will benefit. So there's been a lot of talk about how uh, reforesting certain parts of the landscape, particularly, let's say, gillsides or riparian woodlands, can help uh, reduce uh, flood peaks, so uh, extend, uh, attenuate flood peaks and reduce the downstream flooding problem. So agroforestry in that context may have uh, a, a benefit. But I think, and if you insert, um, you know, uh, extant species like beaver into that landscape, you've got a conflict. You know, in the agroforest is about producing. Uh, uh, let's say it might be wood fuel it might be wood for, uh, for construction mm. uh, whatever and if you've got beaver in that landscape then you're going to a certain amount of loss is going to be uh, mm. implied but then the benefits of the beaver will accrue to the one of the other primary roles of agroforestry in terms of reducing flood peaks so it's a it's a juggling act in terms of establishing what exactly you're doing the agroforestry for mm. is it purely for timber production is it for wood fuel? Is it for its biodiversity benefits? Is it for its flood reduction benefits, in which case the beaver fits in with that? Or is it for something else? Mm. You know, the aesthetics. Is it, is mm. it, is it uh, a wood forest product? Joy Rose for Farmarama speaking to Steve Carver. If you're looking to further understand the broad scope of projects that fall under the banner of rewilding, the Rewilding Britain website is a great place to start. The aspect of this debate that we find most worrying is that farming is pitted against rewilding often. Like the two can't work together. I'm glad to hear Steve saying that this is not the case, that there are many different degrees of rewilding, and agroforestry is one example. I guess where the sticking point comes is how much of your crop, be that trees or berries or whatever, is it plausible to leave for the wild animals? So, for example, with beavers... You could lose some trees to their gnawing, but on the plus side, they build dams that prevent flooding for many years to come. So it's finding that balance. This is something that we don't know too much about, and we'd really like to hear more farmers' opinions and thoughts on it. So please write us a quick comment on the Farmerama Radio Facebook page, or tweet us at Farmerama underscore underscore. It was also clear that rewilding projects have the most impact if conceived as part of a collaboration across the landscape, between farmers in the valley and on the mountains, in the south and to the north, as wilderness habitats need to be semi-continuous so animals can migrate around. Are you working in collaboration with any fellow farmers or know of any projects like this? We really would love to hear more. Last summer, we happened to be in Chagford on the same day as the Soil Association Future Growers Apprentices on one of their discovery weekends. As part of the programme, uh, these apprentices do a paid internship at a nominated farm. 
They also have a series of weekend trips as a whole group to share their learnings and see other inspiring growing projects around the UK. It was clear everyone was working hard and learning a lot as they go. Hello, my name's Laura. I am currently working at a farm in East Sussex called Cherry Gardens Farm and I started there in February. My first time on a farm was actually picking grapes in France. I just wanted to know how to make wine (laughs) and through that I heard about woofing and I woofed for a few years while I was initially while I was applying for jobs in the NHS and I quickly realised that the farm work was a lot more fun than anything I would be doing in the NHS. Um, and one of the wolf farms that I worked for offered me a job um, just with a little stipend and I stayed there for six months working after maybe six months of woofing. Um, and then I heard about the Future Grower Scheme through a chance meeting with Rachel Harris who coordinates it um, and I applied for a six-month traineeship on a farm in Dorset called Gold Hill which practices um, no-dig uh, grows vegetables on a no dig system and I was there for six months and I had a very interesting time uh, supplying wholesale I ran the market we had a farm shop and we also supplied a box scheme so it was really varied although very small scale uh, well I definitely from today's visit to Chag Food I really liked how um, Ed was growing his courgettes and his well, his cookie bits through my pecs and then at the end of the season co- covering the whole leaving the mypex down to help to clear the weeds ready for the carrots and parsnips the following year. That just seemed so elegant and simple. I'd like to use that one day in the future. Um, Hi, I'm Saskia. Um, I am currently uh, an apprentice at Dalesford Organic. Jez, head grower there, asked me to go in as the seasonal picker with the strawberries. Um, So I moved in to the market garden um, 15 months ago. Uh, to pick the strawberries and then um, stayed on after the kind of picking had ended, stayed on through the winter Um, and then this year kind of wanted to sort of further my knowledge and find out more about other farms and how to actually grow things and why, you know, we're doing sort of practices that we're doing. So understanding why or as a picker, I'm sort of there picking strawberries, but how did the strawberries get there? I, I kind of didn't know. I hadn't done the decrowning, the mm-hmm. weeding, removing of runners, the kind of winter work mm-hmm. that um, was, yeah, necessarily to necessary to get the strawberries. So <laughs> for me, it's kind of opened my eyes to a lot of asking a lot of questions I didn't kind of know were, you know, existed mm-hmm. or just seeing things through. So I'm Rachel and I work for the Soil Association and I run the Future Growers Scheme. And one of the things that we have is a Google group for people who are within the scheme. And we've got about uh, 50 people, 50 members of that, that Google group. And it's a really good place because it's quite a safe space for people to ask questions um, of other people who are learning at the same time. So people might be kind of less afraid of asking questions if they were in a more experienced group. So you get people asking questions about kind of, you know, what sort of wellies are the best (laughs) wellies to use? Which are the wellies that are going to last a whole season? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, people sharing resources like websites or books or podcasts that they Mm -hmm. like. Or things about, you know... Where do you get your plastic bags for, for packing your salad pack? So kind of all these different questions, all sorts of different questions come up on it. If this has sparked your interest, find out more from the Soil Association online. Before we end, we're going to hear a project run by some listeners in Cambodia. Green Shoots is an NGO which supports the promotion of organic farming practices through education programmes. 
Operations Director Manizi Jaffrey prepared this report about the work the organisation has done over the last six years. Hi, my name is Manizi Jaffrey. I'm the Operations Manager of Green Shoots Foundation, a small NGO based in London, which was set up in 2010 by our founder, John Mark Debrecon. Uh, our aim was to work in microfinance projects, but very quickly we realized that to make um, long-term impact, we needed to work by investing in skills of people and giving them the ability to go, go forward themselves. So in 2012, we started a pilot project in Cambodia relating to agriculture skills. Our aim is to work with local partners, build their capacity and help them to fight poverty and migration in this part of Cambodia. It's very close to the Thai border and young people will normally drop out of high school and want to work in very high-risk jobs. But what we wanted to do was to demonstrate to youth that a rural economy can be thriving and help provide for their families. So in 2014, this pilot project was scaled up to become the Agriculture Skills and Public School Project. The aim here is, is to set up vegetable gardens in 42 public schools, train 47 teachers and about 8,000 to 12,000 students. We've dug new water ponds, improved water ponds where needed to help make these vegetable gardens thriving. And now our local partner will talk more about activities on the ground. My name is Ratna Un. I'm 31 years old from Samrong, Odaminche province, northwest Cambodia. This region was the last province where the fighting with the Khmer Rouge and Purple stopped around 1997, 10 years after the rest of the country. A lot of people who study at the university don't come back to this area as it's so poor. But I want to come back and have the future of our next generation, the children. Um, the, the project that I work for called um, ESPERS, Agriculture Skill in Public School, in partnership with Green Shoot Foundation, the UK charity. Um, we are working with 43 schools in the area and over 70% of the teachers in this region are also farmers. Also, most of schools start at 7 o'clock in the morning and finish around 11 a.m. so that the teacher can go off to the farms. A lot of the children then have to go and have their parents too as they are um, also farmers. Teacher will train about how to make compost, organic pesticide, set up the vegetable garden, uh, especially about water irrigation because this area does not have much rain. Right, and now I'm passing over to one of the teachers who got trained by Esper's project. He will then express about his organic vegetable garden. hi. My name is Yeso Luan. I'm 31 years old. I'm a teacher in Danish Primary School, located in Adaminche Province, Northwest Cambodia. Above, a month after my training, we choose a plot of land in the school for the vegetable garden. The teacher, student, and local community involved 
digging, raising bed, building fan, preparing compost, pesticide, and setting up the water irrigation. This is now our third cycle of growing vegetable. The previous two harvests were pretty good and improved. Uh, the first crop were morning glory and lettuce. Second crop were cucumber, yard long bean, uh, morning glory and lettuce. Now, growing in the vegetable garden, we have eggplant, tomatoes, lettuce, and morning glory. We share this harvest with children and sell some vegetable for seed for the next cycle. I experienced that through this project, children, parents, and teacher are all interested and involved the vegetable garden. Some parents and children have started their own vegetable garden at home. With all of their health, it has made the vegetable garden a big success. Thanks, Manizi and Co. It's always inspiring for us to hear from people on the ground in different countries. It's the time of year when we are again believing that the sun is coming back and we're starting to think about all the ways the land is going to spring into life. Thanks for joining us this month, and we'll see you next time on Farmerama. Bye. Ta-ra for now.